Good morning. The verses for today are from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right. Good morning. Everybody good? Everybody ready? Okay. Uh, we're going to do several things. Um, I'm going to give some background sort of to the intent of the author here, what he's doing with literary devices. I do that sometimes. Did it last week. I'm going to do it again today. Then we're going to look at this story from two different points of view. First, from the point of view of the leper, and you're going to sort of look at the world from his eyes. And then we're going to move over here and we're going to talk about it from the point of view of the crowd. Um, And maybe we'll see some things. Maybe we won't, but maybe we will. Okay. So um, also, if you can't stick around today, if you are like a, a member of the church and you can't stick around today, first off, Boo, I wish you could stick around. It's not going to be long. Um, after I've got these two services, and then we've got that i got to do. And then I'm going straight to a wedding. So I'm not trying to drag stuff out, right? Um, but if you just say, like, no, I literally can't, um, go by Maribel's office on the end next to the coffee, because you're probably going to go get coffee anyways. And be like, hey, Maribel, can I get one of those ballots? And you're going to grab one of these and, uh, and just fill it out and drop it in. There you go. Not hard. All right. Uh, so... I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I'm forgetting. There likely is. There's three probably members of the governing board right now being like, Tommy, it's this. Tell them this. And I'm forgetting. So whatever. Um, Let's pray and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this people. Thank you that we get to do this, that we get to gather and we get to open up these ancient, ancient texts. And thank you for the resources that we have today to have a fuller understanding. Thank you for um, uh, the minds that you've given us to comprehend and understand these things. Thank you for the world that we live in where we get to sort of bring these things into our day and, and, and find a way to contextually apply them here. Give us wisdom, give us knowledge, but give us more so wisdom than anything else. Um, help us to see what this means for us. Help us to see um, the healing you're trying to bring into our world healing which we are so regularly resisting. Help us today to maybe just finally surrender that. Um, Speak through me. Allow me to remember the things I've studied. Um, Thank you. What you were doing is good. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start right here uh, in verse 1, as I do. Um, And last week we studied this a little bit. We touched on what it means. I'm going to get a little more in-depth with it now. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So, um, I have pointed out several times some of the literary devices Matthew is using. I see them as vitally important to understanding the text. Now, um, one of them is that Jesus is always, Matthew is always positioning Jesus as a new Moses. Um, Not just a new Moses, a better Moses. Okay? Um, This is a huge deal because Matthew is Jewish Jesus was Jewish, believe it or not, was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Um, now, um, and the early followers of, of Jesus were, were Jewish. 
This is a big deal. So if you've been keeping count of all the ways that Matthew has compared Jesus to Moses, then you'll have a running list. If not, let me catch you up to speed. Um, So first off, uh, one more here. Now, when Moses was born, you'll remember, Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of every child, every boy under the age of three. And he escapes to Egypt to find safety. Same thing happens when Jesus is born at the beginning of the book of Matthew. He's born. Um, Herod orders the death of, and of, of all boys under the age of three. And they escape literally to Egypt. Now, um, second, Moses passes through the waters of the Red Sea. They part, leads the people through. Immediately after that, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. All right? Now, Jesus is baptized in the waters of the Jordan. He passes through the waters of the Jordan instantly. Uh, The next passage is he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. All right? Um, Let's go farther. Moses gave the people a new law. He took them to Mount Sinai. And on this mount, he brought down a new law from God, which um, would then lead them away to this new kingdom. He would lead them down from the mountain to this new kingdom. Jesus goes up on the mount, gives a sermon on the mount, gives them a new law, and tells them, I'm taking you and leading you to a new kingdom that God is establishing. All right? And the early readers, the Jewish readers, alarm bells are going off. They're like, wait a minute, he's not saying what I think he's saying, is he? Absolutely. We go a little farther. Moses gives five books. of the Penta means five. Pentagram? No. Um, like Penta, five. Um, Pentateuch, five books of Moses. That's what they called them, the books of Moses. So Jesus in the book of Matthew gives five discourses. And last week we talked about how he ordered them, which is amazing. Now, um, last thing for today, Moses performed 10 miracles. Remember, he's, he's trying to set God's people free. So he goes to Pharaoh and he performs 10 miracles to set the people free. No joke, he performs these miracles in three groups of three and then one on the end. Jesus now is going to perform 10 miracles in a row. And guess how he's going to do them? In three groups of three with one on the end. This is all intentional. This all has a meaning and purpose. We don't necessarily see it because we did not grow up reading and memorizing um, the books of Moses. These people did. They could likely quote many of them um, by the age of 15. They could quote the books of Moses uh, by heart. They could just quote them. They said one of the tests um, of the Talmudim was at one point they would take a scroll and they, they should be able to take a needle and stick it through the scroll and they would be able to tell you exactly which letters that it hit. I have no idea if that's even possible, but that's how they would talk about how much you should know the Torah. All right? I imagine it's a literary device. Who knows? Now, um, so today, here we are, because Jesus is going to lead his people. Did you see that? (laughs) That happened this morning, and I was like, wow. It happens again one more time. Freak accident. All right. Now, uh, anyways, so here's where we are. Now, um, Jesus is now going to perform 10 miracles in a row in three groups of three and then one. And the whole point of each of these miracles is to set the people free from something that he sees them as in bondage to. Now, the gospel books were all written to the church. They weren't written like to the world to read necessarily. They were written to the church um, so that they could understand how to be the church and how to establish the kingdom of God, how to take part in what God is doing. And so as the church gathers and reads these books, we should be reading these um, and we should read each individual miracle that he does and we should read it and say, um, okay, what is he trying to set the church free from? And we locate that thing. We locate it individually in our own hearts. 
We locate it communally together and we repent. So here is where we are. We're going to try to find the things that we need to repent of, the thing revealed by the miracle. All right? Ready? I don't even know how it happened. I didn't do it. Okay. Um, Now, verse 2. Here we go. So he's leading him down the mountain. He's the new Moses. He's going to set God's people free, right? Ten miracles are going to set them free. Here we go. A man with leprosy, I don't know why that's there, came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay. Doesn't seem like a huge deal to us. People go to the doctors all the time and they want to be healed. Now, um, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to start by reading something from a, 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 a German philosopher for you. Um, his name is, is Johann Wolfgang von, von Goethe. Who knows? I don't know if I'm saying that right. I think I am. Um, and, uh, and here's what he says. If you want to understand poetry, you have to go to its origin. And if you want to understand the poet, you have to go to the poet's home. This is never more true than when you're reading the Bible. If you really want to understand what the writer is doing, you sort of have to go to his home, his place, his time, and understand it. What did it mean to meet a leper? What did it mean to have leprosy? What were the repercussions of what this man was doing by approaching a rabbi? What are the repercussions of what these people following Jesus, what are they being confronted with right there in front of them? Okay, so we're going to talk about all this. So now we're going to talk about what it was like, what it would be like in the poet's home to be a leper. Okay, Um, so there were two types of leprosy. I am not going to show pictures this morning. I would recommend you not Google image any of this. It's not pretty. Now, um, there are two types of leprosy that mainly are confronted in the Bible. Um, in the first century, they were, they were really various diseases. They just called them leprosy because they didn't know what we know now. Um, the first type, it takes nine years for this type of leprosy to kill you. Um, it starts off with, uh, believe it or not, it starts off with your eyebrows falling out. Um, if you've ever seen somebody that, you, okay, I'll put this in the context of my life. I was on a, a bus once hanging out with some dudes and this guy walks in, and I've known this guy since I was like 12, and he walks in, and his head is shaved, and his eyebrows are shaved. had no idea who he was, and I know this guy. I know his family. We spent time together. He had just, on a dare, shaved everything. I talked to him for like five minutes, and then I realized who he was, all right? First thing that happens is when you, attack, when you get this kind of leprosy is your eyebrows fall out, um, and then you start to get these sort of um, nodules on your skin, on your body. They begin to burst and they begin to ooze. Um, you get ulcers on your vocal cords. So you start, not only are you recognizable on your face, your, your voice becomes unrecognizable because you start sounding like you're growling when you talk. Um, then uh, you begin wheezing when you breathe. It's not a pretty sight. You, your hands and feet become covered in sores. Slowly your entire body becomes covered in these huge oozing sores. There's no way, position that you could lay down in where you're not laying on them so you can't sleep. Um, you begin to go insane. Um, there's no way out of this thing, and it slowly kills you over about nine years. Now, that's the first type of, lep- type of leprosy. The second type of leprosy um, took about 25 to 30 years to kill you. Now, remember, life expectancy in the first century among the average peasant was only about 35 years old anyways. All right? I would likely already be dead. 
Um, life expectancy was already that. So basically, this was something you attained, this disease you attained, and you just lived with it the rest of your life and uh, expected to live out the rest of your normal days suffering in this way. This type of leprosy started with uh, your hands, your fingers, and your toes becoming numb to the touch. And it would sort of spread. It would move upwards. Now, once they're numb to the touch, you would burn yourself regularly cooking food or you would cut your hands and not even know. You would smash your fingers and not realize it because that's what the, our sense of pain does. It actually protects us. Um, and eventually, you're, you, you, they also get covered in sores and boils. Um, the boils grow on your face and your neck. Your hands turn into like these curled up sort of claw type shape and your feet curl up. It becomes very difficult to walk. So you start hobbling. Um, eventually ulcers form all over your hands and feet and your body and your, your hands and feet begin to drop off starting with the fingers and then the hands up to the wrists and your, your toe feet begin to fall off and the end of your nose goes numb and it falls off. Your ears fall off. You become this unrecognizable skeleton basically. Um, and you basically, you're dying an inch at a time for a quarter century. This is the disease. Um, as bad as this sounds, this wasn't even considered the worst part. The worst part was when other people found out that you had leprosy and the things that happened instantly at that moment. Um, let me read you some, uh, some Levitical law. Always fun. Uh, Leviticus 13, 46. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. Now, unclean is a huge deal. Um, this doesn't mean... Um, they're diseased. This literally means um, they're out of the camp. They have no part in our faith. They can't take part in the religious community. They can't worship in the temple. No, it's no sacrifices. They're, they're, they're not right with God. Um, they have no communion with God, no communion with their faith community at all. Not a lot. That whole swath, which was the most important part of their life, is just gone. This, it doesn't really hit modern day people so hard because most of us, our faith turns out to be not the biggest part of our life. For these people, it was everything. And from the second they realized they had this disease and they told somebody instantly unclean and pushed out. Now, um, they must live outside the camp. It was even worse if you read the verse before this because it says anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes and let their hair be unkempt. So they instantly have to make themselves look completely unattractive, tear up their clothes, their hair has to grow wild, um, and, and basically make yourself purposely unattractive. And then they have to cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean, everywhere that they went. Every step they took, they would be, if there's people in the vicinity, if they noticed somebody, they'd be yelling at them, unclean, unclean. Like, I, I'm disgusting in the eyes of God. I'm disgusting in the eyes of our religious leaders. I'm out of community with the Jewish people, my own people. I'm unclean. I cannot come near you. And people would just run. Because being unclean was the worst thing. Um, uh, William Barclay points out that, that if, uh, if in, in the middle, okay, so the, the medieval period, which basically after the fall of Rome, there's no central government, so all these towns put walls, castle walls around their cities, and they become all these individual cities, like castles with their own kings. Um, during that period of time, um, if you contracted leprosy, the priest would call everyone to the church service, and they would basically have a funeral for you and pronounce you dead and send you away. This was a very incredibly serious thing. So I want you to imagine... 
walking into the city streets as a leper. And you're walking in. And everyone sees you coming. Your whole job, your responsibility as a leper is to make sure that you don't interact with anyone for the rest of your life, ever. Some of these lepers would enter into leper colonies, um, but this was actually literally breaking the rules because it says you must live alone. But they've, I'm already out of, out of communion with God. What does it matter? I'm going to break the law and move in with a bunch of other lepers. Um, now, again, the most terrifying thing would be becoming unclean. And, and the way you would gain your cleanliness again, it was kind of expensive. There was rituals you would do. It was a burden. And buildings, houses, clothing, things could become unclean as well. And they needed to be cleansed again at great cost to the people who owned the things. And if you were a leper and you're walking down the street, you didn't, need, you didn't even need to enter into a building to make that building unclean. Although if you did, it was unclean. All you had to do was look into the door of the building. And if the, a leper, if you're like standing at your stove and your door's open and a leper walks by and you make eye contact, your house is literally now unclean up to the rafters. The whole thing. Unclean. Um, and you're walking through the city and everyone is terrified of you. Um, they were legally not allowed to greet you and say hello to you. Legally not allowed to speak to you. In any way. Um, they were not allowed to come within 18 inches of you. If the wind was blowing and they were downwind of you by 50 yards, half of a football field, I think, I'm not a sports guy. You could not stand downwind of a leopard 50 yards. So this person was basically a living ghost. They couldn't look at people. They had to look down. So they're walking through the city because they've got to buy food sometimes. They've got to go in and buy food somehow. And there was these good Samaritan kind of people that would leave like food and you would take the food and you put the money there, whatever. Money's unclean, got to ritually cleanse it, all this stuff. Um, but your whole job is to kind of look down, yell unclean, scare everybody away and walk through what becomes basically a ghost town when you walk through. So you're walking through this crowd. People are required to stay 18 inches away. Um, they're all parting around you. No one has ever touched you since the day you were declared this. It could be 20 years since somebody has physically touched you. First off, do you know the psych- psychological damage that does to a human being? And they're walking through the city and everyone is, their job is to pretend you're dead and don't exist. Um, actually, it was, you were, it was less offensive to touch a dead body than to touch a leper. This is your new life. This is, this is how you move through the world. Um, when it comes to the spiritual leaders, you would think that they would have more compassion on the lepers, but actually it was even worse. Um, there is, um, let me find this here. One rabbi writes about how he wouldn't, uh, in the Mishnah, he writes about how he wouldn't buy an egg from a street where a leper had passed through. Um, another one, let me put a quote on the wall here for you. Um, this is uh, Rabbi Resh Lakish. Uh, he writes, when I saw one of them in the city, I threw stones towards him and I said, go to your place and do not defile other people. Just a spiritual leader, like your pastor throwing stones at you saying, get out of here. Okay. Um, there's a, another rabbi who, who says, basically, when I saw one of them, uh, he says he hid himself from him. Since it's written, this shall be the law of the leper. Now, um, I have questions about this one because why would, the, why would the rabbi have to hide from this person? Like if you don't know somebody, you don't have to hide from them. I'm assuming maybe the rabbi knew this person. 
Maybe it was one of his students. And maybe the student sees his old rabbi and he's been in isolation all by himself for like seven years suffering in pain and he sees someone that, used to, that he used to love and follow and the rabbi is literally hiding around a corner hoping he doesn't see him so he doesn't talk to him because the rabbi cares more about the spiritual life and the religious aspect of this whole thing than the actual human being because the most important thing is obeying the laws of God. This whole thing is disgusting. Now, uh, that's what it's like to be the leper. I want you to imagine now um, that you are this person. I want you to imagine yourself waking up one day, even modern day, whatever, just wake up one day and, 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 then, and then you realize something is different about your, about your body. Something is off. Something is not right. And you have no control over it at all. You can tell nobody. Because you have a feeling of what this is. And you finally tell somebody. And instantly you are a pariah. Your family, your friends, your religious leaders, your spiritual community, your church, all sort of make you this pariah. And you are sent away. You are not allowed to come back. You have nothing to do with them anymore. They are going to move on with their lives without you in it. Um, and they see you in public and they, run, they sort of move the other direction because they want nothing to do with you. Um, and they're not literally throwing stones, but they may as well be because the words that are coming out of their mouth and the things that they're saying and the things they're sending your way are painful and degrading and hurtful. That is the feeling of the leper in the first century. That is the feeling. Make no mistake, there are modern day lepers. They exist. They're in our communities, they're in our towns, they're in our cities. They're in your families. They exist. Um, Ex-convicts, the homeless. In the, in the 90s, I remember it was mainly, it was divorced women. In the 80s, it was people with AIDS. Um, Alcoholics, addicts, people who don't fit our normative stereotypes of race or gender, they exist. They are the ones that we have made pariahs, that we have pushed out. Um, and their spiritual leaders have turned on them, their families turned on them, their friends have turned on them. And they find themselves, the only place that they can go is the, the leper colony the place where only people exactly like them who have suffered the way that they have can gather together and find solace in each other because God's people sure won't show it to them. The illegal immigrant, the person on the opposite side of the political aisle from you, the liberal, the Trump voter, whoever it is, who are your pariahs? They exist. They are in your life. There are many who feel this way today. Many. Um, now, most people, when they read this story, most, I would argue most, most Christians, when they read this story, they kind of see themselves in the crowd of people following Jesus. And they're excited to see Jesus healing somebody and making them whole again. Um, however, there are people, a lot of people, you know them, when they read this story, they don't see themselves as the crowd. 
they see themselves as the leper. They see themselves as the outcast, the pariah, who dwells only in the leper colony, or who's hiding who they are. And they, they know that they cannot approach you. There are plenty of passages of scripture that we just kind of read and, and we assume the reader is on one side. Matthew knows there's a lot of people in his, in his readership who put themselves on the other side. And Jesus has been teaching all this stuff about a new law and love and grace. And then he stands up and he says, now, come on, we're going to practice this and we're going to move. And instantly they are confronted. A leper runs up, drops to his knees right in front of them. What do they do? What are they going to do? We're not even told what they did. I would offer a few suggestions. First off, they're likely mortified at what is happening right in front of them. Because this person, they have an agreement. They're supposed to pretend this person doesn't exist. And this person is to do everything they can to not exist. This is the agreement that we all have. However, many people in that crowd would have known in their history people in their family, in their synagogues, um, in, their, in their work, maybe spouses and children and parents who came down with leprosy and they had to treat this way. Some of them likely, towns were small, some of them likely knew this man before he had leprosy and had not looked him in the eye for maybe a decade, but has these memories of this guy. Maybe when they were children and they're playing together. And then one day, he tells them who he is and what's going on, and he's dead to them. And here he is. They've committed to following this Jesus as their new Lord. And this guy comes running up and kneels down. The first thing Jesus tends to do is to shake us up a little bit and to confront our piety. Because everyone wants to remain religiously pious. Everyone wants to be seen as like, well, they're holy and they're righteous. And every time you look at them, they're just an upright example of how to live a good life. And then Jesus, this rabbi who acts nothing like the other rabbis, allows this man to approach, looks him in the eye, speaks to him. You're not allowed to do this. Um, and then from here, it goes farther. So when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, let me underline this for you. Jesus reached out and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the lep- the, immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now, question. Did Jesus have to touch the guy? Absolutely not. There's about five other times in this particular book, the book of Matthew, where Jesus heals people from miles, even a couple days journey away. Just by speaking a word. Jesus did everything he could to do the opposite of how everyone had ever treated this man. He had no reason to touch him other than the fact that the man hadn't been touched. And Jesus reaches out and all these people are watching. Maybe they know him. And they've treated people, they've treated their own family members this way. They knew the second they heard the word leprosy, they would never touch them again. And they're watching Jesus reach out and touch this man, look at him and talk to him. And their whole identity, like their whole world is crashing down. They're like, wait a minute, are we, 
Are we allowed to do this? Can we move towards people like this? Towards our pariahs? Towards our, is this okay? One thing you need to ask when you read the Bible. So I was raised being taught, um, you read the Bible, a passage a day, and then you, then you ask the question, how can I apply this to my life? It's the wrong question. It's a terrible question, honestly. Um, the question you should ask is, why did the author choose to save this story. I mean, John himself in the last chapter of John says, Jesus did so many things that if we were to write them all down, there's not enough libraries in the world to hold all the amazing things that he did. And so all we have is like these specific things that these people saved. One of the biggest questions you can ask yourself is write this down. The biggest question you can ask yourself when you read the Bible is why did they save this? Why did the church need to hear this? Why is this story? Why is this story important? Because with this touch, Jesus broke countless laws. Jesus went against the attitude of every rabbi out there. And Jesus touched a man who hadn't been touched in years. He's risking his health. He's risking his reputation. He's risking his ministry. He's earning the scorn of every other religious leader or every pastor that was out there. All of them. And I would imagine that some of the people watching would have simply burst into tears watching this happen. For several reasons. One of them is because out of absolute shame that they have done this to people, that they have ignored this person. And they thought they were going to become more pious following this new Lord. Others likely burst into tears because suddenly they were free. Yes, you can love this person. They don't have to be your pariah. You can embrace this person. You can hug this person. You can welcome this person back. You can let them in. You don't have to push them away. That is not what God intended. Now, um, one of the things that the scriptures are trying to do with the gospels in particular is to change your view of God. And it's, it's a really hard thing to do because we have these constructs of God. We have ideas of what God looks like. Um, here, let me illustrate this terribly for you. Um, so you have this idea of God in your head. You, God looks like this in my head. He looks just like this. I, I have it in my brain. I know what God is like. By the way, it turns out every psychological test done says that the gods that people believe in, it turns out God looks exactly like them. God has the same political views as they do. God has the same um, pariahs as they do. God hates the same things they hate. Um, and this is what we do. We, we tend to have these constructs of God. Most of them are built in our own image because we are idolatrous people. We like to worship ourselves. Um, the problem is when you talk to other people and you talk about God, even if you are agreeing with them about who God is, you have no idea that in their mind, they likely have a different view of God than you do. You're both talking about the same God. Even if you're agreeing on this one particular topic, the picture they have in their mind when they talk about God is likely even just a little slightly or hugely different than the picture that you have when you are talking about God. This is important to understand because the gospels are written to a group of people um, in a world where there were thousands of gods and everyone had an idea of what God would look like, what God would do, what God wanted wanted us to do, how this was supposed to look. We still do this today. Um, And here's what we do. We, we come to the scriptures and we have an idea of who God is. And then we say, 
well, Jesus is God. What you're doing when you say this is you're saying, my construct of God is here. I read the Bible. Oh, Jesus is God. Jesus equals that. Boom. And Jesus becomes the preconceived notion and construct that you already had. This happens every day. The problem is everyone has a different construct of who God is. This is a problem. The writers of the Gospels knew this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew this. One of the reasons they are writing to the church is to erase all of this, to bring it all around, like just get rid of it all. And here's what they do. They take this whole thing and they flip it upside down. And they want you to see this. God is Jesus. It seems like a small thing. But what it does is it gets rid of all the constructs. And it, and it forces you, in your mind, um, to picture God as Jesus. The goal is that you wouldn't say anything about God that you wouldn't say about Jesus. And that when you talk about God, you're talking about Jesus. I've heard people even in this church say, like, I, I love Jesus. I don't know about this whole God thing. I would say you've missed the point entirely. Jesus is the representation of the picture you should have in your mind of who God is. This is why I don't uh, debate like existence of God stuff. I'm like, well, Jesus obviously existed. Scholars know this. He was existed. We can, we, can, we can have, you know, really good debates about like some of the things that you don't think he did that I likely think he did. Um, but still, when I talk about God, I'm just, I'm talking about Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. And so I, this is, this is literally one of the goals of the gospel writers is to wipe all of it away. And when you talk about God, you're talking about Jesus. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the same thing. Um, and this is important because so many of us um, disagree in our actions with Jesus while we're trying to obey God. Okay. Jesus is literally correcting these people's view of who God is and he's acting it out. He is the image of God in this world. He is, when you think of of God, this is what you should see. Now, let's go back to our passage today. When Jesus came down from the mountainside. Now, this is why, okay. The writers of scripture, especially Matthew and the gospel writers, um, they're not just just giving a new view of, 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 of God in Jesus. They're... They're giving you new authority in every aspect because the people would look to Moses and they would look to um, the, the Adam as the representation of things. They would look to all these people. And so, and so Matthew writes and he says, oh, by the way, Jesus is the better Moses. When, you, when you're thinking of a leader and the prophet, you're just going to think of, of Jesus and you're going to follow Jesus. When you're thinking of the law, you're going to think of Jesus' law and not this other thing. When you're thinking of anything, you're going to think of Jesus. And then at the very beginning of Matthew, if you remember, um, he lays out, Jesus is the new King David. Because when you think of a king and a lord or a president or whatever, you're going to think of Jesus, not anything else. You're just going to, Jesus is president, Jesus is king, Jesus is lord of my life. This is how I will live no matter where I am in the world. It's universal, all right? Um, Not only that, Paul writes about Jesus being the new Adam. All the ways that Adam messed up the world. Oh, Jesus has entered in. He's the new Adam. He's fixing it. Um, The early Christians called Jesus lord. In other words, no other king. Every authority in their lives was being rapidly replaced with Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's very simple. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it is. And then you look at all the scriptures 
through the lens of this one person. As Brian Zahn said, we, we have not, God looks like Jesus. We have not always known that God looks like Jesus, but now we know God looks like Jesus. Okay? This is the center of the whole thing. And when we read this, we're seeing how God acts in the world. And we're seeing if you want to be a godly person, this is how you act in the world. Do not pit God and Jesus against each other. Verse 2, a man of leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, that's a big deal. If you're willing, God was never willing until this moment, it seems, in the eyes of the people. Uh, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Remember, notice, he didn't even really ask for healing. He just wanted to be made clean. That's a huge deal. That's massive. Um, and Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Why did Jesus do that? This is the interesting thing. Because Jesus is not content just healing somebody. Jesus wants reconciliation. That's what Jesus' ultimate desire is. Bringing people back together. Whole relationships with God and people. And if this man had just gone back to his house, his wife and kids are there. Hey, I'm here. They're going to freak out. He's going to say, no, look, I'm clean. It doesn't matter. The only construct they understand, the world that they live in, the only thing they understand is the priests. And so the first thing he has to do is go to the priest, go through this whole thing. It's, it's in Leviticus, um, Leviticus 14. There's like, he goes to the priest, there's sacrificial ritual. There's, there's two birds, crimson yarn, hiss up. He's got to wait seven days. He's got to shave his whole body, go back, and there's two goats. It's a whole deal. It's a huge thing. But God tells, Jesus, you're going to do this anyways. Because my ultimate desire, my biggest concern is not really tearing down all these religious constructs. My biggest desire is reconciliation. That's it. Some of us tend to think God's biggest desire is just tearing down these structures. It's really not. Oftentimes, Jesus works within these things to bring people back together because his, his ultimate goal in this person, it's not the healing of the body. It's the reconciliation of the soul to people and to God. That's a huge deal. And remember, the point of this story is to paint Jesus like a new Moses. And so he thinks, Matthew believes the church has lepers. Matthew believes that we are in bondage to our lepers. Matthew believes as long as you cannot welcome people and reconcile with them and accept them into your community, as long as you're doing that, you are in bondage because you are not free to love them. And Jesus is entering in saying, you, you really are free to love them, spend time with them, embrace them. You really are free. And, and by the way, you likely have someone in your mind today that is your pariah. It could be a political group. It could be an ideology. It could be whatever it is. It could be a person who has done something, said something. You have pariahs. Jesus, the new Moses, is performing a miracle so that you can be set free from that pariah, so that you can reconcile, so that you can welcome them back. I have pariahs. You have pariahs. We all do. The reality of this is gut-wrenching. It's terrifying. Because we don't really want to love people who are different. We want to love people who are just like us. 
And we'd, we feel we'd be much comfortable if they just went away. Jesus is calling you to repent of that. He says, you don't realize how in bondage you are. And he went to incredible lengths to reconcile with you. We're going to take communion. Our communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, as we go into a time of communion, do we have communion servers today? Do we have any? Oh, man. Hey, uh, give me like how many people? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven people? Eight people? Anybody? We got one, two, three, four, five, six. Good. All right. We're good. Grab that stuff. Spread around the room. You know what to do. I want to invite all of you to take communion with us. Before you do, I want you to ponder your pariahs in your life. That person, that group of people, whoever it is, that you will have nothing to do with. And I want you to picture yourself in your group of people who equally have nothing to do with those people. And you're like, yeah, well, we follow Jesus. And then Jesus is like, okay, here comes one. Come here. Wraps his arm around him and heals him. And says, do you know this person? They're your brother. They're your sister. Come on in. Let's spend some time together. How uneasy does that feel? That's Jesus' desire for you this morning. Sometimes it's unease. And then we repent of these things. And we pray for them. We pray for their wholeness, for their goodness. We pray for success in their lives. We pray for them to find happiness and joy. And then we come and we come to the table and we bring all of that, all that stuff. And we take the bread, we dip it in the wine and we eat it. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you. So that you could find healing and wholeness. And then there's this call to follow so that you can find wholeness with other people as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning in this place. Cleanse us, heal us. Help us to rise above religious piety. Help us when we, when we look at Jesus to understand that that is the definition of God. Help us to study you, Jesus, from beginning to end, to model our lives after your example to truly grasp and understand. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.